You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 150, The Winter War, Part 8, The End. This week, a big thank you goes out to Garth, Evan, Luis, Mark, Josh, Sergio, Stephen, Dustin, Shannon, and Zizi for choosing to become members. You can find out more at historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members. The last episode covered some of the ways that the Red Army began to take the fighting against Finland far more seriously by bringing in a new commander, Tymoshenko, and reworking their general plans to take better advantage of the Soviet advantages in material. Along with this change, near the end of January, the Soviet leaders would change their diplomatic tactics, with Molotov beginning diplomatic conversations with the Finnish government by using the Swedish government as an intermediary. A key point of compromise from Molotov to start off this round of discussions was a clear and unambiguous recognition of the legitimate Finnish government instead of the communist government that had been set up early in the Soviet invasion. This was the only position that Molotov could take if he wanted any realistic chance of a diplomatic end to the war, and it would work. Just because the diplomatic path was being pursued by the governments at this time did not mean that the efforts of the Red Army on the Isthmus would slacken, and after February 11th, they would actually increase in ferocity as the diplomatic negotiations continued. Last episode covered at a high level some of the Soviet attacks of early February, But after February 11th, the overall speed and power of the Soviet attacks would increase. It would be on the 11th that the Finnish situation, which for several days had been critical, began to really fall apart as a decisive breakthrough of the primary Mannerheim defenses was achieved. The root cause would be a Soviet attack on the Lade Road to the northeast of Suma, where the 2nd Battalion of the 9th Infantry Regiment had been trying to hold back the Soviet advance over the preceding days. The 2nd Battalion had started the war with uh, around a 1,000 men, and it had used those 1,000 men to defend over 2 kilometers of the front. But over the course of the preceding weeks, that number had been slowly reduced, and by February 11th, the battalion could muster just 400 men, but they were still defending that same 2 kilometers of front. While Finnish units like the 2nd Battalion were slowly wasting away, the Soviet manpower pool seemed inexhaustible, and on the 11th, 18 fresh Soviet divisions would be moved into the attacks along the Isthmus, 
Some of these forces would finally be able to push the 2nd Battalion out of their defenses, causing the first major breach in the primary Mannerheim defenses. By the time that this was known, back at Finnish headquarters, the breach had already been solidified and reinforced by Red Army units, making it impossible to regain the lost territory, even if manpower to attempt a counterattack was available. There was another line of fortifications known as the Support Line, about a kilometer behind the primary line of defenses, but it was not even close to comparable to the primary defenses, and if the Red Army pushed through the Support Line, the entire series of Isthmus defenses would collapse because they would easily gain access to roads that ran along the Isthmus, which would allow them to cut off Finnish positions to the north and to the south. Even without pushing through the Support Line, The new breach of the main line of defenses allowed for the breach to be widened and expanded, threatening every single position on both sides. This included the two strongest bunkers of the entire Mannerheim line, which defended the approaches to Summa. The first of these to fall was the Papias bunker. The bunker, while a strong defensive position that protected its defenders from fire, had a major weakness. The largest guns that it had were machine guns, not anti-tank guns. This made it impossible for the defenders to react to tank attacks without the support of infantry outside the bunker. But over the previous days, that infantry had been slowly ground down, and this allowed the Soviets to really focus just on the bunker itself. They would launch a massive artillery barrage to isolate the bunker, focused just on the bunker itself and its surrounding areas. Artillery guns would also be brought up right to the front to allow for point-blank fire on the bunker itself. The concrete was strong, but it could not survive this kind of focused artillery fire, and large chunks of the bunker would begin to be torn away. Once this fire had taken its toll, destroyed some of the firing embrasures, the tanks went forward. And due to the lack of anti-tank guns, they could literally just drive right up to the bunker itself and then park in front of the remaining firing embrasures to prevent them from firing on the Soviet infantry. They could just park right in front of the machine gun. Even with all of this effort, the first attack would fail, but then hundreds of additional infantry were added to the second wave, and the defenders of the bunker, commanded by Lieutenant Malm, would simply be overwhelmed, with the bunker being fully under Soviet control by 1.30pm on February 11th. While the Papias bunker was under attack, a similar effort was launched against the Million Dollar Bunker, the other major bunker that had guarded the approaches to Summa. A similar attack was launched, but the defenders of the bunker, commanded by Lieutenant Erickson, would have some more success in defending their positions. There would be two opportunities for the Finns to surrender in this case, but they rejected both of these chances. But really, it was only a matter of time. Eventually, 500 pounds of explosives would be placed on top of the bunker in a crack, and then it was exploded at 5 a.m. on February 12th. Every single one of the defenders was killed by this explosion. Once the bunker was destroyed, many of the nearby Finnish positions also had to be abandoned, and the defenders would retreat to the support line to the west. There would be a moment when a unit of Soviet tanks actually completely broke through the Finnish defenses due to the disorganization of the defenders, and they probably could have just kept driving west against little opposition as long as their fuel tanks would have allowed. But instead, they stopped and waited for the infantry to catch up, as there was no way for them to know that they had completely broken through the Finnish defenders and there was nothing in front of them. One of the reasons that this happened, and why the situation around their bunkers was so dangerous for the Finnish defense, 
is that it was just one area that was under attack. There were Soviet attacks happening everywhere along the isthmus. Also, on the 12th, there were five separate attacks against Suma, just to the south of the bunkers that were destroyed. These attacks were defeated, but only at the cost of 1,200 casualties. And every single Finnish soldier who was killed or wounded during this time of fighting was a huge loss, because they were already so outnumbered, and there were very few men left to replace them. A great example of what it was like for Finnish soldiers at this time can be found in the actions around the Muala Church, roughly in the middle of the isthmus. This position would be defended by only a few hundred Finnish soldiers, and they were without any anti-tank weapons as they had been either disabled or sent to other areas of the front. But on February 11th, they would come under the attack of eight Soviet tanks, which would advance to within 20 meters of the Finnish positions, although they were stopped there due to the lack of infantry support due to Finnish fire. This was an important change from the earlier fighting on this area of the front from, from back in December 1939, when the Soviet tanks had recklessly pushed forward without infantry, making themselves vulnerable. Instead of committing that same mistake, the tanks would instead withdraw back towards their lines and prepare for another attack the next day with more infantry. Over the next two days, the 12th and 13th, the attacks continued, and every time an attack was launched, it was repulsed, but by a dwindling number of Finnish defenders in positions that were more and more destroyed by Soviet artillery. They had also received orders. The position was to be held at all cost, and there would be no reinforcements of any kind. The attacks continued on the 14th, this time with the addition of flamethrower tanks. Now to handle this new threat, the Finns would cover their faces and just run through the flames as quickly as possible, depending on their snowsuits to protect them. I think that it says everything about how desperate the situation was that they found out that they could just run through the flames really fast, and that would allow them to get close enough to the tanks so that they could maybe try and disable them. On the 15th, no further attacks would be launched, as the Soviets had run out of artillery ammunition. But then on the 16th, they began again. During this attack, the Soviets would add some new heavy KV tanks. But fortunately for the Finns, two of the large tanks hit some anti-tank mines, which would cause the others to reconsider their paths forward. The final attack on the 16th was barely stopped, with the Finnish defenders basically out of ammunition. It was only then that the order arrived that they would abandon their position and move to the reserve positions behind the line. Out of several hundred Finnish defenders, only a few dozen would still be alive to receive that order. These type of costly defensive actions would occur everywhere, and even in the areas where the defense was successful, it would often be very costly. And the Finns were reaching the point where there were no more replacements, no more reinforcements to send forward. To try and find something to send to the front, conscription in Finland was expanded down to 16-year-old boys and old men in their 50s. And northern Finland was being stripped as quickly as possible of every extra man. But this yielded only hundreds when the situation called for thousands. Unfortunately, any man that was found and which was sent forward would not find nice prepared positions like the Finnish troops had been occupying up to this point in the war. And often there were no positions at all. Serious discussions were happening at Finnish High Command about a general retreat from the remaining areas of the Mannerheim line. There were political considerations to this move, though, because at the same time that these attacks were happening and the Finns were being pushed to the very edge, there were active diplomatic conversations occurring. 
This pushed Mannerheim into a position where he insisted on every single meter of Finnish soil should be defended at all costs, because the more territory that was held during the negotiations, the more territory the Finns would control after the war. This was bad military strategy. The Finnish army no longer had the resources to defend these areas, and there was a serious risk that large units would begin getting cut off or collapse entirely and just begin retreating. This meant that no matter how much Mannerheim wanted to hold on to as much territory as possible, there would come a breaking point, and that breaking point would arrive on February 15th, late in the afternoon, when a general retirement to the intermediate defensive line was ordered. The one area where this retirement was not ordered was to the north around Tapali, which was still holding in the original Mannerheim line defenses, which was even more impressive when you consider that this area had been first attacked in the first days of December, way back at the beginning of the war. But the territory here was different and the Soviets were having some additional problems. But basically everything on the central and southern sides of the isthmus would begin a general retirement late in the afternoon of the 15th. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. While it was good that the Finnish soldiers had the intermediate line to retreat to, there was a reason it was the intermediate line. It was often much less impressive than the primary line or even the reserve line of fortifications had been. In some cases, there were essentially no fixed fortifications at all, and it was more like just a line on a map where the troops stopped retreating. In those cases, the Finnish soldiers often tried their best to throw something together, Maybe fell some trees, maybe lay some mines, maybe try and sight some machine guns, or if they were really lucky, they might have an anti-tank gun. By the 18th, just a few days after the retreat was ordered, the Soviet tanks were already pushing up against the intermediate positions. 
During these attacks, the Soviet units often just went for it, recklessly pushing forward even without proper infantry support for the tanks, which would cost them several tanks just like it had during earlier attacks. But there was a certain luxury that the Red Army had in these attacks. They could replace their losses. Meanwhile, the Finns could not replace their losses, and there was nowhere else to retreat to. This was their last defensive line. Even though the defenses around Zapali would last longer than in other areas, the beginning of the end for those defenses on the northern end of the Isthmus would come on February 18th, when the Soviets got serious about pushing the Finns back. An entire division, along with huge numbers of artillery guns and with strong support in the air, pushed forward, overrunning several critical strong points. The forward defenses were lost. The reserve line held, but only barely. Overall, the situation was grim, and to try and stabilize the line, the only Finnish armored attack of the war would be launched on February 26th, when several old Vickers tanks moved forward. They would shock the Soviets and would have some initial success, but the old Vickers tanks only had 37mm cannons, and they soon ran into Soviet tanks of a slightly newer vintage that they could not destroy. The attack was over in a matter of hours. In the last days of February, Timoshenko could smell blood, and he planned to launch another massive effort all along the line on February 28th. But Mannerheim preempted this attack and ordered a withdrawal once again to the rear line, which was even more just some lines on a map. This meant that when the Soviet attack was launched on the 28th, the artillery fell on empty trenches, and the Soviet attackers found no defenders. While the fighting on the Isthmus was continuing, negotiations between Finland and the Soviet Union had already started. In the middle of February, there had already been conversations in Sweden between the two parties, with the Finnish foreign minister, Veno Tanner, presenting an offer for some of the desired territory that the Soviets had wanted back before the war started. However, every single day that the fighting on the Isthmus continued, and continued to go poorly for the Finns, meant that the Soviet negotiation position became stronger. Their starting point were some of the islands that they wanted and the entire Karelian Isthmus. All of these conversations were happening in Sweden, but the Swedish government was not wholly uninterested in the negotiations. Instead, they wanted to find a path to peace that resulted in Finland retaining its independence, even with reduced territory, so that it could continue to exist as a buffer state between Sweden and the Soviet Union. Many of the Swedes, both inside and outside the government, were not a big fan of this path, but it would be the path pursued by the Swedish government, with the King of Sweden making a rare public statement on this specific topic to make it clear that the Swedish goal was to find a path to peace, even if large areas of Finland were lost. In the last days of February, things would start to happen very quickly for the negotiations. On February 25th, the Soviet demands were made clear. The Isthmus, a base at Hanko Island, and the signing of a mutual assistance pact with the Soviets which uh, had basically not changed since before the war. They demanded that an answer be given by March 1st. At the same time, the Finnish leaders would come to understand the scope of the possible military assistance from Britain and France, which was really disappointing, to put it mildly. The lack of possible foreign intervention and the very firm communications from Mannerheim that the military was at the point of complete deterioration would force the Finnish government into agreeing to the Soviet terms on February 29th. It would take time for the message to arrive and for a negotiating team to be sent to Moscow. And during that time, the Red Army's attacks would continue, and it was clear they would continue until the final agreement was actually signed. 
The Finnish negotiation team would arrive in Moscow on March 8th, and it was not really a negotiation team, as there would be no negotiations. It was only at that point that they found out that they would be forced to give up additional territory in northern Finland, that they would be forced to build a railway between Tornio on the Swedish border and then link it up to the Murmansk Railroad for use by the Soviet Union to get Swedish iron ore, and these demands caused a lot of discussion in Helsinki as the government decided what to do. There were some discussions about continuing to fight on, but a report would arrive from General Heinrichs on the Isthmus, and he would have the full support of Mannerheim when he wrote this statement, and it would read, quote, As commander of the Isthmus Army, I consider it my duty to report that the present state of the army is such that continued military operation can lead to nothing but further debilitation and fresh losses of territory. In support of my view, I set forth the loss of personnel which has occurred and which is still going on. The battle strength of battalions is reported now generally to be as low as 250 men, with the aggregate daily casualties rising into the thousands. As a consequence of physical and spiritual exhaustion, the battle fitness of those who remain is not what it was when the war started. Considerable losses of officers further reduced the utility of these diminished units. End quote. This message, this final message from the army about the state of the war at the front, prompted a somewhat simple message to the Finnish representatives in Moscow. Quote, Headquarters has furnished situation report, not sanguine about chances of carrying on. As continuation of war on the basis of aid promised is difficult, and as contact with you is slow, we authorize you to decide the matter in all respects, provided you are unanimous. There would be further attempts to get the Soviets to negotiate on literally anything, but Molotov simply said that they could either sign it immediately, or they could negotiate again after the Red Army had captured some more territory. On March 11th, the decision was made to sign, and the signature would occur on March 13th. A ceasefire would take effect on March 13th at 11 a.m., but just to throw some additional suffering, the Soviets would launch a massive artillery barrage about 15 minutes before the ceasefire came into effect. At this point with the fighting over, Mannerheim would give his farewell order, stating among other things, quote, Soldiers, I have fought on many battlefields, but never have I seen your like as warriors. After 16 weeks of bloody combat with no rest by day or night, our army stands unconquered before an enemy whose strength has grown in spite of terrible losses. Our fate is hard, now that we are compelled to surrender to an alien race, land which for centuries we have cultivated with our own labor and sweat. Yet we must put our soldiers to the wheel, in order that we may prepare, on the soil left to us, a home for those rendered homeless, and a better life for all. And as before, we must be ready to defend our diminished homeland with the same resolution and with the same fire with which we defended our undivided homeland. We are proudly conscious of our historic duty, which we shall continue to fulfill, the defense of Western civilization which has been our heritage for centuries, but we also know that we have paid, to the last penny, any debt we may have owed the West. End quote. The Winter War had lasted uh, about three and a half months, and during that time, and on both sides of the conflict, the war had been costly. On the Finnish side, there were around 25,000 killed and 44,000 wounded. But those numbers need to be put in perspective, because they represented around 1.75% of the total population of Finland in 1939, which means, as a percentage of the population, it puts it around the same as the United Kingdom would suffer in the entirety of the Second World War, and the Finnish casualties were compressed into just a few months. On the Soviet side, the numbers are harder to determine, the challenge being that 
At the time, you have Soviet sources that are probably downplaying the numbers to make the cost of the war seem less than it was, but then later on, after de-Stalinization campaigns, the numbers were probably overestimating the number of casualties. This results in some pretty wide ranges, but just to give an idea, kind of a middle-of-the-road estimate, it's probably somewhere around 150,000 killed and 200,000 wounded. No matter the exact number, whatever that number was for the Soviets, it was certainly far more than they expected, because when they had planned the war, and when the war had started, they expected it to be an easy war. They would march into Finland, they'd capture a bunch of territory, take Helsinki, and install a communist puppet government. Job done. Obviously, it was a bit more difficult than that. The challenges that were faced put into stark relief some of the failures in basic preparations that had taken place in the Red Army leading up to the conflict. There were not enough warm clothes, resulting in over 100,000 frostbite casualties. The men and officers were not prepared and trained for the fighting in northern Finland, which contributed directly to the disaster of Suomasalmi. There were also mistakes that we've not really even discussed, like the almost complete breakdown in the training of replacement soldiers due to the much higher than expected casualty figures. This resulted in replacements being sent to units with almost no training, making them more of a burden than a benefit. There were many nations around Europe who looked at their winter war, trying to determine as well as they could what had happened and why, and also to evaluate the strengths and weaknesses of the Red Army. The evaluations in Germany would obviously be very important to future events, and so I'll just quote a little bit from a report written by a German by the German general staff at the end of 1939. So that would be after the failures of the opening Soviet offensives, but before the more successful attacks in February and March. Quote, In quantity, a gigantic military instrument. Organization, equipment, and means of leadership, unsatisfactory. Principles of leadership good, leadership itself, however, too young and inexperienced. Communication system bad, transportation bad, troops not very uniform, no personalities, simple soldier, good-natured, quite satisfied with very little, fighting quality of the troops in a heavy fight, dubious, the Russian mass is no match for an army with modern equipment and superior leadership, end quote. That's important to keep in mind because of, well, you know, what happens after 1941. The Red Army would also begin their own evaluation of what happened in Finland to try and learn lessons and help them to understand and prepare for future conflicts. To this end, 46 officers and select regimental commanders who had fought in the war were brought to Moscow in April 1940. The discussions were chaired by Voroshilov, and there were some mistakes made in their analysis, which was compiled over the following days. Maybe the most important was due to the actions of the 168th Division north of Lake Ladoga. To remind you, this had been the division that had been cut off and surrounded by Finnish forces, but had been able to hold out until they were relieved several days later. The assembled officers rated the Soviet defense of these pockets by the 168th Division to be quite good, very very highly skilled not taking into account the fact that the Finns mostly could not do anything due to simple lack of numbers and firepower. It was not because the Soviet troops had unlocked some amazing method of defense. The fighting in Finland also prompted some additional focus in the Red Army on fixed defenses and assaulting fixed defenses, which had been so critical in the fighting on the Isthmus, although it would not be particularly useful for most of the Second World War. Looking back from the modern day, we can give our own analysis here, and while it's clear that the Soviets had some major challenges in Finland, 
You can already see some of the features of the Soviet soldiers and the Red Army that would serve the Red Army so well in the very trying years in their future. At an individual level, the Soviet soldiers fought hard and continued fighting hard in truly abysmal situations. Even with all the challenges being faced, morale was never truly broken. The Red Army also proved that it could overcome some real adversity and adapt quickly to the circumstances that it faced, which is one of the major reasons that it was able to launch those crushing offensives under Timoshenko after he took over command, even after all the failures of December 1939. For the Finnish military, there were many positive aspects of the fighting, even if, in the end, they were defeated. It was not due to lack of fighting spirit or ability that the Finnish army had been defeated, but simply a, a lack of material and manpower. What had been shown on the battlefields all over Finland was that the Finnish soldier and their officers were very flexible and skilled at using their strengths in the realms of small unit tactics and the use of the Finnish countryside. At a high level, the Finnish army knew what it needed to do to fight in the conditions found throughout Finland, taking care to ensure that the soldiers at the front had training and experience and supplies, all of which they needed to survive in the harsh environments. But none of these positives could outweigh the technological and industrial imbalances, even though there was no shortage of effort both from the soldiers and on the home front. These experiences would serve them well in the years that followed, because the fighting between Finland and the Soviet Union was far from over. What would come next would be called the Continuation War, which would begin alongside the German invasion in the summer of 1941 and continue until September 1944. But that's a story for another day. <laughs> 